What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Pretty early here in the Matovic household. Um, this will be the first podcast, solo cast that I recorded in 2022. Um, may not be the first one that I release, but we'll kind of see. Sometimes I kind of hold on to these for a little bit just in case I uh, have a little blip in the schedule. Um, I've been feeling a little bit down the last couple weeks about some of the stuff that's been going on recently in the Libertarian Party, but um, I'm generally relatively optimistic, but we're not really going to talk about the Libertarian Party in this podcast. Um, what I do want to talk about, though, is optimism and why we should be optimistic about the Joe Biden presidency, which is pretty ass backwards if you just about ask anybody. But um, it's such an undeniable disaster that it's in everybody's faces. And the regime, which is Joe Biden, the swamp, as Donald Trump would say, um, it, it's so clear that this is it and that essentially the emperor has no clothes so we're going to read quite a few articles um about inflation the economy um handling covid and some press releases and uh you guys can just kind of let me know what you think and we can have a conversation about this and hopefully you guys share the same sentiment that uh things are going relatively well and um if everybody has a problem with my black rifle coffee t-shirt <laughs> for People listening, I gave a middle finger, but I, I just like their coffee. I, I don't know about the whole deal with their, uh, you know, whatever the guy reading about Kyle Rittenhouse, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. At least I really don't care all that much about it. I just enjoy their coffee. So uh, <laughs> without further ado, let's uh, get into it here. Here we are. Um, we're going to start off here and kind of go from here. Um, this is that press release that everybody was sharing from December 17th. Um, where is it? Okay, we are intent on not letting Omicron, Omicron, whatever the hell it is, we're intent on not letting Omicron disrupt work and school for the vaccinated. You've done the right thing and we will get through this. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your families, and hospitals. You may soon overwhelm. Um, it's funny that they're curious about why people don't like Joe Biden or don't like the job that he's doing. But um, I know this didn't particularly come from him, but uh, when you have a regime or a White House that comes out and says things like this, that you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your families, and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm and telling people based on a medical decision that they're going to die, essentially, and that they did the wrong thing and imply that people who made a medical decision that's opposite of what you would want that they've done the right thing. Um, it, that's very divisive. It's very, very divisive, and it's going to lead a lot of other people the other way. Perhaps even people that might have voted for you may not feel differently because you, um, you know, you said something so controversial. <laughs> people don't like it when you tell them they're going to die. <laughs> Shocker. So uh, that came out on seventeenth. But um, we're going to read through this article here about Omicron um, and Omicron oddity. The number of cases doesn't predict the number of deaths. This is from Stat News. Um, early in the COVID-19 pandemic, the case fatality rate was frightening. This metric represents a portion of all known people infected with the disease who die from it. The World Health Organization initially put it at as high as nearly 16% in Algeria, which now obviously we all know is false. Maybe for some people who are more elderly or obese, yes, but uh, I don't think anybody's under the impression that it's 16% case fatality rate. Several colleagues and I at Vital Transformation began closely following the data of COVID-19 early in the pandemic. I wondered if case fatality rates might be skewed by lack of testing. We collected data on various in, in, indicators, 
type weather that early on were thought to be influencing the spread of COVID-19. We analyzed standard metrics such as case rates weighted by age and population densities, but also deeper metrics such as tourists per year and a number of university students in a city. Our findings published in April 2020 showed that the case fatality rate was indeed being widely overstated and predicted that it would drop by 5% for every 10% increase in the number of tests. Um, that makes sense because the more people you test, the more positives you're going to get. And um, some people may not even have symptoms, but may test positive. And especially when you look at how they do the PCR tests, um, they're incredibly unreliable. So if you get a lot of false positives or even a lot of positives, younger people, um, younger people aren't, you know, as affected by COVID as older people. So, um, you know, you, you, it, it will be overstated and you're going to have a lot of tests and not many people are going to die who test positive. So um, continuing on here, that prediction turned out to be correct, as it is now known that the majority of early COVID-19 cases, particularly in those under the age of 65, had been completely missed. The overall infection fatality rate and the actual measure of deaths due to the overall infection across the entire population obtained via genetic testing is closer to 0.2% or two deaths per every thousand people infected. That's a funny way of saying that COVID-19 has a 99.8% survival rate. Um, you know, they'll never say that though. <laughs> Since that time, we've kept in a keen eye on the relationship between cases and deaths, particularly during the recent waves, which have been influenced by improved treatments and vaccines, as well as by new variants. There are legitimate concerns about the trajectory the new news variant Omicron and the public health experts paying close attention to exponentially mounting cases, particularly in the United Kingdom, which in the past has functioned as a canary in the coal or in the COVID-19 coal mine for the U.S. Uh, what wrote this should probably uh, get a better uh, reviewer editor. <laughs> well, early reports from South Africa suggested that Omicron might cause less severe COVID-19, the rapidly mounting case numbers and overall transmissibility have been alarming, particularly in the UK, according to a December 10th government technical briefing, CPH 17, Omicron cases were expanding by 35% per day. There's something else different this time around, at least in the UK, the statistical relationship between COVID-19 cases and deaths appear to have broken down with Omicron. Looking at daily death rates in the UK from May 15th, essentially from the point at which the Delta wave began to September 15th, saw a statistically significant relationship between daily new cases and deaths. In short, cases, case rates accurately predict death rates. So essentially they're saying that the um, death rate from Delta was a lot higher than that of Omicron. Um, a little bit of the graphs right there. Beginning on the beginning of the analysis on September 15th, coinciding with the flattening of the Delta curve and the onset of Omicron, shows no statistical relationship between COVID 19 deaths and COVID 19 case rates, or uh, case rates of deaths. See that backwards. Another little graph here. In earlier waves, rising death rates would follow an increase in cases. The impact of rising cases on deaths could be seen visually and validated statistically. Death Deaths would follow cases upwards and peak roughly two to three weeks after new cases began trending downward. With Omicron, however, we not only don't see the rise in death rates that were associated with the first waves, but we actually see continuing decline in death rates despite a radical increase in cases. Um, a lot of people have talked about this, but um, I can't remember what the exact concept is called, but it's basically the concept of viruses um, continue to grow in transmissibility, but lower in lethality. So basically more people will get it, but less people will die and it'll be a less severe disease. So that way the pathogen can continue to live on. Um, that seems to be what's happening with COVID is it's getting more and more transmissible, but less and less people are dying and there's less and less severe disease. Um, once again, kind of going back to why I'm so optimistic is because they can't keep up this browbeating agenda that COVID's the end all be all and we're all gonna die because it's now getting to the point that it's so mild not enough people are dying for anybody to really buy into the propaganda and the hype that we're um, you know, essentially being fed. Whether or not this breakdown of the relationship between Omicron cases and deaths would play out in other countries like the U.S. is hard to say. Omicron is currently more prevalent in the U.K. than in the U.S. and the U.K. has far better screening rates, both of which could alter outcomes in the U.S. It's still, of course, early days. While it is possible that death rates due to Omicron may rise later, at the moment in the U.K., COVID-19 daily cases no longer meaningfully link to deaths. So according to the math, Omicron cases rising 
no longer automatically means impending doom and gloom, nor does it require apocalyptic language like we're hearing from the media and political leaders implying mass waves of death with rapidly increasing case rates. Let's hope these statistics hold. Um, it, it's funny that you're now starting to see this, and this is what I mean by the emperor has no clothes. People are starting to realize that what we're being fed is just not true. So that article was published December 22nd, 2021. Um, I'm going to continue on here. Biden resists shutdowns. Omicron threat rises. Um, I've said this before in a lot of podcasts, and I've talked about it quite a bit, but um, I just don't believe that people quite have the patience or the desire to go along with this COVID regime anymore. People are starting to wake up. Um, I'm going to continue to say that because more and more people are realizing it, and I think it's a good thing. I think that we should realize that the government can't control this disease, this virus. Um, nothing that they have done has really affected the spread of the disease. The vaccines have been incredibly mildly effective, as far as I could tell. Um, people can go look into that themselves, but um, you know, there's so many breakthrough cases that are initially we were told that if you got vaccinated, you couldn't get COVID and this is the end all be all, but this just doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Um, as to how effective they are, I just don't know. I don't think anybody really knows for 100% accuracy, but from what it looks like to me, it just helps people not get as sick, which if that's the risk you're willing to take by taking a vaccine, then okay, take it. Um, I have natural immunity through an antibody test. My fiance and I are planning on going and getting our antibody tests done again. I'll probably come back with a relatively high amount. So just is what it is. President Biden is resisting school closures and other shutdown measures in the face of highly transmissible Omicron variant as the public grows increasingly wary about a seemingly never-ending pandemic and confusion over mixed messages from health officials. Biden is trying to urge people to take precautions, but his speech on Tuesday represented a shift from earlier messaging. No longer is he endorsing strict mitigation measures such as non-essential business closures and the concept of social distancing is hardly mentioned. I just want to make sure. Yeah, so this was published on the 22nd as well. Um, it's so funny to hear them talk about non-essential businesses because anybody who's providing a good or a service, I would consider essential or the market will deem it essential or non-essential. Um, people will voluntarily wear masks if they think they need to. People will voluntarily vaccinate if they feel they need to. You don't need to force this. Good ideas don't require force. So, um, if people feel a business is non-essential in the time of a deadly pandemic, deadly, um, then people just not go to that business. But as you can see, all you did was create black markets and people stayed open and there was a lot of turmoil over, um, you know, shutdowns and things that people did not desire. Uh, once again, in a free market kind of deal, people would just go to the business that they want and, you know, kind of associate with who they want to associate with and assess their risk in their own way. You wouldn't need a government to tell people to do a certain thing. I like Larry Sharp's idea, and he's coming on the show here shortly. But um, basically, you would have a outline of precautions that the government would approve of, and then you get a stamp. There's no shutdowns. There's nothing like that, but there'd be a stamp, let's say. Um, and I'm not trying to speak for him, but this is kind of loosely what I got from it. Basically, the government would lay out these measures that a um, company can take, and you'd get the government-approved stamp. And then other places just wouldn't get that stamp, and then people could choose where they want to go. And, you know, the place with the stamp, you'd get the more, you know, people who are taking more precautions to go there and people who don't really care about the precautions will go to other places. Um, continuing on here, but Biden is facing limits of what he can accomplish. The administration is pushing testing and vaccines, which it cites as part of the reason for not naming stricter pandemic measures, but there's no political appetite for anything stronger. It's definitely true. People will not tolerate lockdowns again. At least I don't think they will, but... You know, we were wrong in 2020, I think, where we thought people would uh, tolerate or wouldn't tolerate lockdowns, but everybody did. Uh, Biden's new tone instead reflects on the reality that COVID-19 is here to stay and that Americans should not be expected to completely upend their lives once again. Uh, I don't think anybody should have been expected to upend their lives no matter what. But that's you know neither here nor there. The U.S. never had a nationwide lockdown like other nations did. Even during the height of the pandemic in spring of 2020, each governor made his or her own decisions about level of restrictions to enact state by state. Still, health experts and administration officials generally agree that widespread shutdowns, businesses, and other in-person settings are unnecessary because the U.S. has widespread coronavirus vaccines that protect against serious illness. It's kind of funny how they shift this narrative of, you know, the vaccines are the end-all, be-all, and now they just prevent 
um, serious illness, kind of like how they shifted from deaths from COVID to just cases, all these little seamless shifts that just kind of get swept under the rug and nobody really notices or talks about. Quote, this moment is much different than March 2020. We have tools to keep people safe and we'll continue using them to do so. White House Coronavirus Coordinator Jeff Zients said during a White House press briefing Wednesday, further restrictions would also be massively unpopular. Biden is already dealing with second poll numbers and a country exhausted by the seemingly never-ending cycle of exploding case numbers. The prolonged closures and restrictions last year had a damaging effect on the economy that the country has only partially bounced back from. Quote, the public is thoroughly disillusioned and past the point that they will accept a closure of society or that their kids are going to go home and learn remotely again. So Lawrence Gostin, a public health law professor from Georgetown University, from a public health point of view, what we've seen is lockdowns that every time we lock down, we do dampen the virus, but as soon as we open, it roars back up. We haven't demonstrated any long-term benefit from lockdowns. Now they said the quiet part out loud is that um, government cannot control this virus. I was, I was sorry for people listening, but uh, the uh, screen kind of loaded up and moved me back up to the top. I lost my place. Um, if you do look at the graphs, and I would refer everybody to a Tom Woods COVID charts quiz, um, you can't pin the tail on the donkey. You cannot figure out where these lockdown measures, mask mandates, or anything like that went into effect because they just don't do anything. They literally do nothing. No matter what the government does, they cannot stop the spread of COVID. It's almost like we have no control over nature. Imagine that. But even if it's not on the same level as 2020, the U.S. is starting to see operations or uh, starting to see some signs of disruption to operations that did not experience during the Delta wave that began hitting the U.S. in the summer. Some Broadway shows have been postponed or even closed for good after outbreaks. Restaurants are also shutting their doors due to infections or exposures among staff. Washington, D.C. area, dozens of schools have resorted to virtual learning for the rest of the year. Prince George's County schools in Maryland said that they will be virtual until at least mid-January. The NHL became the first U.S. professional sports league deposit season after a rash of outbreaks among teams. The league also withdrew its athletes from the Winter Olympics in February, but the White House is not endorsing any closures or pauses, especially in schools with vaccines widely available for children as young as five. Biden's leaning in the policy such as mandates as a way to force the issue. Um, once again, if people want to get vaccinated, they will. I don't necessarily agree with vaccinating children because you know that they're just so not likely to see any severe disease from uh covid that i just don't think they should have to take a vaccine if they don't want to actually i don't think children should take the vaccine at all because we just don't know what the long-term implications are from it pretty much see that kids if they get covid they don't really spread it because they clear it so fast so what's you know what's the purpose here you know are we actually hurting kids by giving them the vaccine i don't know i'm not an expert um, there's experts out there. You can look into that for yourself, but you know, I say, in my opinion, I don't think they should quote, we can keep K through 12 schools open. And that's exactly what we should be doing by said Tuesday. Once the school district announces its plans to go remote, it puts pressure on other schools to follow suit. The Sheesh Jaw, Dean of Brown University of Public Health said, there's no reason for anyone not to be learning in person. Any level. I think it's irresponsible at this point to do that. Jaw said in an MSNBC interview on Monday, we have all the tools to keep schools open and safe. Vaccinations, testing, improvements, and ventilation. Tens of billions of dollars have gone to schools. If I hear of a single school district that goes remote, it keeps bars open. What that says means they don't care about kids and they don't care about COVID. I actually think that's kind of a reasonable point. <laughs> Republicans tried to make school reopenings a major political issue at the start of 2021, accusing the Biden administration of bending to teachers' unions. A recent White House member distributed the Democrats about progress in Biden's first year said that 99% of schools are currently open compared to 46% before Biden took office. Biden also recently endorsed test-to-stay programs that allow kids who have been exposed to COVID-19 to avoid quarantining as long as they test negative. The federal government largely does not control whether businesses, sporting venues, or schools close to the threat of a virus or whether they implement mask or bans, vaccine mandates. This is just mostly fall on state and local officials. Right? Do they? When you have Biden saying that you're going to enforce businesses with 100 employees or more to um, require a vaccine mandate through OSHA, um, you know, it's, yeah. So, um, you know, they, they just kind of go on 
talk about lockdowns and other stuff here. Um, don't want to read any more from that. You can read it. I'll post it in the uh, show notes. But I'm continuing on about why I'm optimistic about the Biden presidency. A new poll finds major warning signs for Biden and fellow Democrats. Um, Americans don't feel direct payments or expanded child tax credits doled out earlier this year helped them much, according to the latest NPR Marist poll. And they don't see Democrats' signature legislation as addressing their top economic concern, inflation. <laughs> Additionally, they're down on, on the job President Biden is doing. Don't give him much credit for direct payments or tax credits and have soured on the direction of the country. The results out Thursday come as Democrats prepare a nationwide push to sell voters on their policies ahead of the 2022 midterm elections when the party will defend its slim majorities in both House and Senate. Um, this article was published December 9th, 2021. So this isn't entirely old, but it's old-ish, you know, in <laughs> relevance to uh, news today. Um, this kind of gets to the heart of the issue when it comes to inflation is that um, it is a monetary phenomenon and eventually you have to um, you know, give so much money to beat inflation that you may get to a point of hyperinflation where you have to you know, stimulate and print so much money to give people something to buy because people have to raise prices because there's so much money and so little goods. We don't produce stuff anymore. We just sit here and print, 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 print. But um, I don't want to hit on that too much. We'll hit on that a little bit later in the podcast. Um, the results out Thursday come as Democrats prepare nationwide push to sell voters on their policies ahead of the 2022 midterm elections when the party will defend it. Slim majorities of both the House and the Senate. Sorry, I read that twice. Americans do mostly endorse the new infrastructure law, but are less supportive of Democrats build back better bill that has passed the House. And while that legislation would expand the social safety net, survey respondents weren't convinced that it would help people like them. Um, once again, it's just kind of the whole monetary heroin thing that uh, Peter Schiff always says is that eventually you need to give so much heroin that you're going to overdose. And that's kind of where we're teetering on the edge of. Um, once again, we'll talk more about that later in the podcast. If they, Democrats, don't have a unified message for what they're doing and it does not bode well for the party, says Barbara Cavallo, director of the Marist Poll. Um, views on direct payments and the child tax credit. More than 6 in 10 respondents said that they received a one-time direct payment of up to $1,400 earlier this year. As of late April, the IRS estimated that more than 163 million people had received payments from that program. However, four in five of those who received payments said the money helped at least a little, but only a quarter said that it helped a lot. Um, when you sit here and just throw good money after bad constantly and just ramp up inflation because it's all this really does, um, but don't produce anything, then all people do is go on a shopping spree and then increase our trade deficit because we don't produce anything. Um, if we don't produce anything to consume, then people in America are no longer better off because we didn't grow their net wealth. Uh, Democrats have called their agenda under Biden transformative for most Americans. They say policies like the direct payments and changes to the child tax credit are part of a broader plan for the federal government to provide needed services to support people who have historically been disadvantaged in the economy. Um, I don't agree with this at all. And I think anybody who's of libertarian mind, like probably a majority of my listeners would agree that um, just throwing money at people doesn't fix the problem. You need to give people incentives to work and also make them more productive. So that way, when they do work, um, they see a greater reward from it. Well, so once again, just throwing money at people doesn't do that. You can throw money at people all day long, but if they're not productive and there's no goods for them to buy, then um, you know all you're doing is creating inflation and then ramping up the price of everything. Um, Democrats say the child tax credit has part particularly a large impact on low-income families for whom the additional funds have been crucial. A recent study from Columbia University found that those monthly payments kept 3.6 million children out of poverty in October. Like how they kind of never define that, what that is. Um, in the NPR mayor survey, almost six in 10 eligible households said they received the child tax credit, but 59% of the eligible respondents is far below the number of families the government expects should be getting funds. The IRS estimated earlier the, this year that the families of 88% of children in the U.S. would be eligible for the payments and said in September that 35 million families received them. This connect between the government figures and respondents' answers is perception and a credit problem for Biden and the Democrats. Even among those who did recall receiving the tax credit, two-thirds said it only helped a little 
and one in five said it didn't help at all. Once again, everybody's levered to the max because you you have such low interest rates that people's savings don't grow and they're not encouraged to save. So they're just encouraged to unload the money as fast as possible. Especially when you see, let's say you are saving, um, let's say you have a hundred dollars saved, um, and it's just a hypothetical. But um, if inflation is fifteen percent, which it likely is in twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one. Then just holding on to that hundred dollars over the course of a year, when interest rates are at zero percent, you lost fifteen dollars of purchasing power, and that can't be overstated. And people really don't like losing purchasing power because you no longer have the same power to do what you once did. You cannot purchase the same goods now. You need more dollars to purchase those same goods. Biden's perception problem. Continuing on here for the president. There were further signs that voters didn't give him credit for the policies of his known of his own administration. When it came to those direct payments, respondents gave Democrats in Congress a plurality of the credit for getting them to the people. Forty percent, all seventeen percent credited Republicans, even though zero congressional Republicans voted for the March relief bill. The same percentage, just seventeen percent, felt Biden was most responsible for sending the cash. Quote, it doesn't look like he's leaving the charge, even though it's his bill, said Lee Murringoff. Director of the Marist Institute for Public Opinion. It's an issue of the messaging out of the White House, Goff said. The president's approval rating was just 42% in this survey, tied with a late November poll for the lowest Marist had found since Biden took office. Okay, once again, we're going to double check when this is published. This was, yes, published December 9th. That's right. So old, but um, I believe his numbers have tanked since then. We're going to continue on in this show, and I'm sure. Um, Nobody will be surprised, but his uh, rating continued to tank. Um, what's more, the intensity of the disapproval is high. 38% said they strongly disapprove of Biden as close to the territory that Don President Donald Trump resided in during his term. While the numbers are a sign of deeply polarized society, there's also evidence of lackluster feeling for the president among even people in his own party. For example, in the surveys, while 76% of Republicans strongly disapproved of the job Biden is doing, only 30% of Democrats strongly approved. Let's go, Brandon. Biden's presidency was also likely to be defined by the coronavirus pandemic and the economy. And on both measures, the country faces significant challenges. Half of Americans approve how Biden is handling the pandemic, but the 50% rating in this survey is his lowest mark since taking office. Um, a little graph here. Basically, it says... Um, in March of 2021, he had about 62% approval rating, 30% um, disapproval rating. And then by the end, they're pretty close where it's about 50-50. Um, December 9th, 44% of people disapprove of his handling and 50% approve. So it's, it's getting pretty neck and neck. People just aren't happy with the administration. Um, and to be fair, I really don't think it would be much different under Donald Trump. I believe we would still see all the inflation. And honestly, we'd probably see vaccine mandates too, because if you've um, seen Trump out there, he's been pumping the vaccine a lot. But um, you know, we're not here in this particular podcast to talk about that. Um, in the late November NPR Marist poll, respondents said their top economic concern was inflation. But in the survey, people were pessimistic that either the infrastructure or social safety net bills would help curb it. Um, only about a third said so of both. They're Democrats, not connecting the dots between the concern about inflation and what's happening in Washington, either with the infrastructure bill or build back better. Cavarro said, who said this should absolutely be a red flag for the party. Democrats have spent months repeating the message that their legislation will not add to the deficit or worsen inflation. And in an in address from the White House in October, Biden called the plan's fiscally responsible policies to help the country grow. They don't add a single penny to the deficit and they don't raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year. In fact, they reduce the deficit. Overall, 61% of respondents said things the country are going in the wrong direction. <laughs> That's a significant drop from back in July when Biden was saying the US was on the cusp of independence from the pandemic. Americans then were split, but more optimistic than they are now in the direction of the country. Um, it's like I was saying earlier, the emperor has no clothes. People see these trillions of dollars being floated out and saying that they're going to spend trillions of dollars, but they don't add to the debt. Well, where's this money coming from? <laughs> um, you have to produce in order to consume. And right now, all the Federal Reserve does is print up money at 0% interest for the government to spend and to 
purchase bonds or send to people or to bail out corporations or whatever. Um, they print out this money and then, you know, nobody's taxes are raised and we're spending way more than we're taking in in taxes, which I'll go to the uh, national debt clock here in a little bit and you can just see how ridiculous this is. But um, people realize that you don't get government for nothing. And the inflation is a clear sign of that. After everybody got handed all this free money by a Republican president and a Democrat president now, um, they got all this free money and they realized that that free money wasn't free and that it comes at the cost of a higher price at the gas pump, higher prices at the store, higher prices at restaurants, higher prices on your gas bill, whatever. People just realize government isn't free. So um, kind of finishing up this article, the infrastructure law and build back better a majority 56% said they support the infrastructure bill that went into law recently. Almost 7 in 10 said they were optimistic it would improve roads and bridges, and a slim majority was optimistic that it would create better paying jobs. Um, <laughs> they obviously don't live in the uh, northeast here, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, wherever, uh, because the roads and everything are still pretty crappy here. But um, this also gets to the heart of another issue where government bills don't benefit the economy because they're not productive jobs. They have to take from taxpayers. They have to steal from productive people who are producing things in the economy and give to people who are not producing anything, legislators, um, you know, governors, whatever they have to be paid. So people, government officials are a net negative on taxpayers and overall productivity. Now, if these government um, infrastructure bills create more prosperity or create ways for the private sector be more productive, then you consider that a net positive, but I don't think this infrastructure bill does that. And we're certainly not going to see it for years down the road because the infrastructure and um, everything that's going on has to be done before it could be considered net positive, right? We have to see the results from the, um, from the infrastructure bill that make people more productive before we can say that that reigns in inflation or anything like that. If you supported the Build Back Better legislation that had passed the House and that the Senate is considering, 41% said they supported it, 34% said they were opposed, and 25% were unsure. That includes a significant chunk of independents who were split on what they thought of the bill. Perhaps more worrying for Democrats, their message on what the legislation can do for regular people does not appear to be getting through by 46 to 42% margin. The respondents said they were pessimistic and it would help people like them. Sorry, I'd take a little drink. Um, so moving on, we're going to continue on this uh, path of bashing Joe Biden because it's just, it's, it's so easy. But um, Joe Biden's approval rating failed to improve as president faces gloomy 2022. I'm recording this on January 1st, 2022. The date this, air, uh, this particular article from Newsweek aired was December 31st, 2021. With hours just left in 2021, Joe Biden is facing moving into his second year in office with a stubbornly low approval rating and an array of major national problems that could further the dent in his popularity. Biden enjoyed approval rating of the majority of Americans during the first few months of his presidency. Excuse me. But his numbers have been underwater since August 30th, according to the analysis by poll tracker 538. The president's approval rating has failed to improve in recent weeks, but he is also facing a difficult new year with unresolved issues, including Democrats' attempt to pass $1.75 trillion Build Back Better Act, a key part of Biden's legislative agenda. 538 tracks the president's approval rating by analyzing a wide variety of polls and also operates its own system of pollster ratings. It gave the Biden an approval rating of 43.4% as of December 30th. By contrast, Biden's disapproval rating stood at 51.6%. Um, that has largely consistent, that has been largely consistent since August 30th, the day before the final withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan. Disapproval of the president has been on an upward trend since the beginning of September. I won't read from this whole article, but um, the problem with this whole Afghanistan deal is that I think everybody largely agreed that it was the right thing to do to get out of Afghanistan because um, presidents seem to generally win on being anti-war, not granted, not them are ever anti-war when they get in, but um, 
war seems to be a key issue for a lot of people because people realize that you know they got the wool pulled over their eyes and you got fed propaganda for a long time and that you were lied to and that these wars cost a lot of lives unnecessarily and generally they are because of blowback and once again we're not going to you know explore that entirely on the podcast but um the Afghanistan withdrawal because it was so botched discredits the idea that we should leave all the wars that we're in. And that's a huge problem because as libertarians and as good people, we believe that we shouldn't be over in other countries killing people. I know shocking concept, but um, when you botch something like that, it, it loses legitimacy in the eye of the public. And now people think, well, maybe we should stay. Maybe we should stay over there for a little bit longer and see if we can fix things when, you know, if you can't fix things in 20 years and trillions of dollars, then maybe it's not fixable. Maybe it doesn't want to be fixed. I mean, we should leave it to the people that own and run that country to fix it. Um, once again, I'm just not going to read this whole article. If you guys want to, um, you know, kind of breeze through it, you can, I'll post it in the show link or in the uh, show notes below. Um, so kind of getting back on um, economic stuff, U S goods trade deficit hits a record in November. Um, Trump ran on this, Biden doesn't talk about it because Democrats don't care about economics. But um, Trump set a record, a high trade deficit at the end of his presidency, and he ran on making that better. And I think everybody who knows anything about economics knew that they weren't going to do that and tariffs weren't going to do anything. And stimulus checks and the coronavirus had only exacerbated the um, problems underlying the U.S. economy. So this was published December 29th, 2021. The goods trade deficit widened last month by 17.5% to $97.8 billion from $83.2 billion in October, the Commerce Department said on Wednesday. That exceeds the previous record deficit set in September of $97 billion. So um, basically what this means is that we're just importing way more than we're exporting. And, you know, I've talked about a lot on this channel and in this podcast that all we do is just print money and send it to other countries for stuff. And I'll say it one more time, the emperor has no clothes. A lot of people are seeing this for what it is. Um, good, goods exports declined 2.1% while imports rose by 4.7%. Trade has been a drag on gross domestic product growth for five straight quarters while inventory added to output in the third quarter. Um, it's a pretty short article, but I'll put it in in case anybody kind of wants to click through it and see what's up. On the U.S. trade deficit in goods mushroomed to a record in November as imports surged and exports slipped. The goods trade deficit widened last month by 17.5% to $97.8 billion from $83.2 billion in October, the Commerce Department said on Wednesday. That exceeds previous record deficit set in September of $97 billion. Goods exports declined by 2.1% while imports rose by 4.7%. The report also showed wholesale inventories climbed 1.2% last month. Retail inventories increased 2%. Retail inventories, excluding autos, which go into the calculation of GDP, edged up by 1.3%. The economy grew at 2.3% annualized rate in the third quarter, a step down from the earlier in the year, but activity has rebounded in the fourth quarter. Trade has been a drag on gross domestic product growth for five straight quarters while inventories added to output in the third quarter. Um, when you look at GDP, it's a very, very poor measure. And there's a good um, Peter Schiff bit. Um, you know, I'm sure as everybody knows, I'm a huge fan of Peter Schiff, and he's the kind of the guy that solidified my understanding of economics. But GDP doesn't collect the whole picture of economics because it leaves out leisure. And people who have a lot of savings, um, are able to enjoy that leisure. And if you just look at GDP, if you have a whole bunch of people digging holes and other people filling it back up and they're being paid to do so, then you could say, look at all this, you know, production and, um, you know, GDP, it's great, but nobody's better off because all you do is dig a hole, pay somebody to dig a hole and then pay somebody to fill it back up. Those people aren't, you know, producing things that people really want that people are going to benefit from. It's just, you know, moving money around. So uh, um, now we're going to get into a little bit more of the meat of this. Um, inflation hits highest level in 39 years as consumer prices jump 5.7% from the New York Post. Um, we are talking about this in the beginning of the podcast, but inflation is a big issue. And once again, people don't like the loss of purchasing power. It sucks. 
if you cannot buy the same stuff that your wage that it probably hasn't gone up in the last year um, if you can't buy the same stuff for the same amount of dollars then that's going to tell you something and you're going to be very very angry with the incumbent about their handling of it um this inflation is not just a joe biden problem it's an endemic problem of government over the last 20 years we've pretty much doubled the debt every eight years and under trump we you know added almost what was it eight or nine trillion dollars in just a matter of four years and now biden's in and they have no concern about the deficits when they float out things like this um it's just going to keep going more and more and more until once again people just realize that you know the, the dollar is worthless and it doesn't buy anything and then you know where it goes from there it's it's ugly it's really bad and we'll only have two ways to uh, pay back our creditors and the people that we owe debts to either default honestly and tell them that we're not going to pay or hyperinflate and pay them back in currency that doesn't you know do anything or that doesn't buy anything um i don't see joe biden particularly having the sack to tell people that we're not going to pay so you can kind of infer what happens from there the inflation rate is running at its hottest pace in nearly four decades widespread supply disruptions high consumer demand worker shortages fuel surge and prices um, that also leaves out the fact that we've printed a record amount of dollars in the last year 40 percent of all dollars in circulation now we're printed within the last year so when you don't produce anything and that, that first paragraph has a kernel of truth to it but it's not the entire truth and part of that entire truth is also the fact that once again we printed 40 percent of all dollars in circulation and we handed that to, to people who didn't produce anything so now once again you have no goods to consume you have the same amount of goods to consume i'm sorry but you have way more dollars so people are just going to raise their prices um, consumer prices soared by 5.7% in a year through November, according to the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index released by the Commerce Department Thursday. That topped the previous month's rate of 5.1%, becoming the fastest pace increase since February 1982 when it hit 6.2%. The string of annual price gains have far outpaced the 2% inflation target set by the Federal Reserve. Food and energy prices rose 4.7% in November from the prior year, which is also the highest since 1982. Consumer spending, which accounts for 70% of the U.S. economic activity, rose 0.6% in November, a solid gain but below the 1.4% surge in October. The inflation jump largely reflected the increasing energy costs, which rose 34% from a year ago, and food costs, which rose 5.6% over the same time period. Services inflation rose by 4.3% in November, and goods inflation increased 8.5%, outpacing the 7.6% rate a month prior, the data shows. Quote, consumers spent with less enthusiasm in November as they shifted their holiday shopping to earlier in the season and continued to contend with escalating prices and reduced product availability. Kathy, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, chief U.S. financial economist at, at, at Oxford Economics told the Associated Press. Um, household spending data also released Thursday revealed that consumers saved less last month and that their consumption was largely unchanged after accounting for inflation. If consumer spending remains flat, the decrease in demand could help tame inflation. Um, really, the best way for them to rein inflation would essentially be to raise interest rates, but they're not going to do that because then everybody would have to default on their debt. And once again, the only reason why the government can do what they're doing and pass these ridiculous bills is because they have zero percent interest rates and um they can pay back the debt essentially same as cash and all the debt is short term where you know the debt um basically what we're borrowing on is what we're using to pay the debt <laughs> um, republican lawmakers say that massive inflation gains are evidence that president Biden's economic policies are not working and are actually hurting american whose incomes are not keeping up with the rising prices um it's funny that they say Republicans because they had no problem with Trump's inflationary um, policies and all the inflation that he caused in his four years. Um, and I think that's going to be a problem for Republicans going forth, at least for anybody who's intellectually honest, because they did nothing when they controlled a majority of the government in Trump's first two um, first two years of his presidency. They chose to do nothing. They chose not to slow down the debt or anything like that. So, um, you know, they're, they're huge hypocrites. The Biden administration, meanwhile, has blamed the country's rapid reopening following a pandemic-triggered recession. 
Suppliers have been unable to keep up with high demand, pushing prices up sharply and clogging the nation's ports with goods that cannot be unloaded fast enough. Um, as I read in the last article, um, that's part of the trade deficit. When you print a whole bunch of money and all you do is go on shopping spree for foreign goods, then eventually there's going to be a lot of ships that have to come in and they leave with nothing. So you're going to end up with a backup. I mean, it's just you know, pretty simple. <laughs> um, Last week, the Federal Reserve said it was accelerating the pace of, ch of change to fight inflationary pressures and that it may raise interest rates next year at least three times to slow the growth and keep inflation at bay. So if you have this 5 or 6% inflation, then um, you're going to need to raise interest rates at least that much to fight it. But um, the way they measure inflation is completely dishonest, and they're not going to raise interest rates that much because, once again, they're going to have to default. It's just... It's not going to happen. While the Fed has stopped calling inflation increased transitory, the Biden administration insists that the price surge will fade next year as supply chains issues gets resolved. It pointed to energy prices and the cost of gasoline as proof that prices have already started to fall. Um, I'm going to disagree here and say that inflation is is transitory. Um, they were never wrong about that. They never lied about that. But <laughs> what they won't tell you is that the inflation is transitory to higher inflation because they're going to continue to do the wrong thing and they're not going to raise interest rates. They're not going to stop handing out free money. Um, they're not going to do any of that. So it's going to be transitory to higher inflation. The government reported Wednesday that the economy as measured by gross domestic product grew at an annual rate of 2.3% in July, September quarter, up from a prior estimate of a slightly slower 2.1% gain. Some economists have projected GDP growth or GDP to grow more rapidly with some high-end projections for the current quarter to hit 7%. But with the new surge of coronavirus bolstered by the fast-spreading Omicron variant, there's some uncertainty if the economic rebound will continue or the virus will trigger another shutdown of the economy. I like how they say the virus will trigger a shutdown. Um, it's not the virus, it's the government. The government's reaction has created all these issues and has created the shutdowns, which then create the inflation, because the government does the wrong thing and they hand out free money and they basically bail out states and places that chose to shut down and remain locked down. And, you know, you didn't produce anything because you were locked down. I, you know, beating this horse dead in this podcast. Um, kind of reading on here, this was shared around a lot. And this is the one time where I'll completely agree with Joe Biden. Um, I'm going to put this in the show notes below as well so you guys can get the full context. But um, the president, Asa, thank you very much, Asa. Look, there is no federal solution. This gets solved at a state level. I'm looking at Governor Sununu on the board here. He talks about that a lot. And then it ultimately gets down to where the rubber meets the road, and that's where the patient is in need of help or preventing the need for help. So um, he's right. There is no federal solution. There is no government solution for the pandemic. They want you to believe there was, but there's not. And they never talked about prevention. They never talked about how you can get healthier. They never talked about any of that. Why is that? Why? Libertarians have said this for quite a while now, but um, the government really can't fix much of anything, let alone coronavirus. So, um, they would have called you crazy two years ago when we all said this, but <laughs> now they're saying it. This just goes more to show you that, um, you know, we're running out of rope here and that a lot of people are losing faith in the government. And this kind of explains why Biden's so popular because they've been all over the board. Um, when you look at debt too, um, <laughs> kind of tap more on the economic stuff. Um, this is a chart off of statista.com. I'll put this below, but um, you can see the debt just continues to grow and grow and grow. And this is a great website that has a lot of good resources. Um, in November 2021, the public debt in the United States was around $28.91 trillion, around $1.46 trillion more than a year earlier when it was around $27.45 trillion US dollars. U.S. public debt has become one of the most prominent political issues in the United States in recent years with a debate how to handle it causing political turmoil between Democrats and Republicans. Um, so they say, but they both shake hands and continue to spend more on military warfare, um, welfare, everything like that. Now, medical. Jesus. 
Um, we're going to finish off here looking at the U.S. national debt clock. And my God, is this impressive. The U.S. national debt is right here. The national public debt outstanding represents the face amount or principal amount of marketable and non-marketable securities currently outstanding. The source of the U.S. Treasury. Um, $29 trillion, almost $29.5 trillion. That's a lot of money, man. Debt per citizen, $88,000. To be exact, $88,708. Debt per taxpayer, $236,210. I, you, if you are working, Oh, that your government has put that on you. Your government has put your children and your grandchildren and their children into that mess. The people you elected have now run up this debt irresponsibly. They're taking one, they're taking trillions of dollars from the economy as a whole and spending 126% of what they take in taxes. Total debt to GDP right down here, 140%. It's, it's ridiculous. It's unbelievable what they're doing. And people are waking up to it. I'll put all the links to everything we talked about on today's show in the uh, show notes below, but um, People are waking up. People are listening to this podcast. People are listening to many libertarian podcasts. People are listening to even, you know, Joe Rogan, who's not by any stretch of the imagination a, you know, some big libertarian, but he's having on the greatest minds of our time. He's talking about the issues that matter and he's putting out minds there for millions of people here. And it's only going to continue to grow. And as that continues to grow, more and more people are going to realize what the truth is and that um, this whole house of cards is doomed to fail. And the sooner it does, the better. So I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank everybody for their continued support. I want to thank everybody for um, supporting me over these last two months, especially. Um, ever since I started this podcast, it's been a phenomenal journey and I'm looking forward to continuing to do it. Um, hopefully you get something out of it. And um, if you do, share it with everybody you know. <laughs> um, give a thumbs up on YouTube, subscribe, you know, give me a review wherever you can. And um, I want to thank everybody for listening to Liberty and Health. And um, until next time, everybody, take care. And thank you so much for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.